0: Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of premier local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on RFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is Charge Up Dunedin. Hello, good evening and welcome to our third and final episode of Charge Up Dunedin. This podcast is brought to you by the Dunedin EV Owners Group and the Otago Electric Vehicles Society, with support from Te Tūroa Environment Strategy. I'm Sam Hales, a Masters in Science Communication student here at Otago University. I have a passion for everything motoring related and have recently started to take a keen interest in educating people about electric vehicles from the point of view of a petrolhead who currently doesn't own one. If you'd like to catch up on the previous two episodes, these are available to stream at your convenience on oar.org.nz. In this episode, however, we're going to be looking into the future and what it holds for electric vehicles. We'll start by looking at what new EVs have come out recently and what there is in the way of aspirational EVs for those looking for more performance or more luxury in their EVs. We're also going to be looking at a number of different electric forms of transport coming into the fore now and in the near future. Before we get into any of that though, I must announce that it's Drive Electric Week from the 14th to the 22nd of this month. There are a number of events taking place where Dunedin EV owners and EV experts will be available to answer all and any of your EV-related questions. If you are considering changing to an EV or just want to know more about EVs in order to help you make your decision, tomorrow on Saturday the 14th there will be EV owners at the Farmer's Market from 9am and the following day, that's Sunday the 15th, there will be another meetup at the Skinner Annex of the Otago Museum with EV experts on hand and cars on display, so you can see the future of motoring in New Zealand, and hear first hand from EV owners what it's like to experience the instant torque and ultra-low running costs of an electric vehicle. So, a lot has happened in the world of EVs since I broadcast my last podcast. In fact, the EV world has moved remarkably quickly in the past year or so. More car manufacturers are developing and launching their own versions of EVs, more charging stations are being built and opened here in New Zealand, and surprisingly, battery electric propulsion is being applied to a huge range of different transport forms, such as boats, motorbikes and even aircraft. The biggest news for the start of this month, however, was the launch of the eagerly awaited Porsche Taycan, also known by its concept car name, the Mission E. Porsche seemed to take joy in taunting us enthusiasts for what seemed like an eternity, covering up the styling and camouflage and barring journalists from filming the interior and so on. But come last Thursday, the wraps were off, and we could finally see the production version customers would actually buy. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the styling, which has hints of the current 911 sports car and hints of older Porsche models, such as the rear light bar reminiscent of the 1993 911, all wrapped up in a body with the proportions of the four-door Porsche Panamera. Anyone who still thinks all EVs are ugly needs to see this, as it's probably the best-looking electric car in the world right now. Like most of Tesla's offerings, the Taycan has a dual-motor setup driving all four wheels, a very luxurious interior, and fast-charging capabilities. However, unlike Tesla, Porsche has stubbornly stuck with a rather old-school naming system for the two trim levels of the Taycan. Despite having an electric motor with no such need for a turbocharger, the top-level Taycan will be called the Turbo S, and the slightly cheaper model will be called the Turbo. Now, call me pedantic, but I've always found it rather naff when car makers have inaccurate names and numbers plastered on their panels. I'm looking at you, BMW and Audi, for the past eight or nine years. But Porsche argues that the name Turbo, at least in the sense of a Porsche, has now morphed into a brand name denoting their most prestigious models rather than a designation of an engine component designed to increase power and for that reason well I guess we can forgive them in terms of stats the Turbo S tops the range with over 560 kilowatts of power and 1050 Newton meters of torque during use of the excitingly named overboost feature the turbo makes 500 kilowatts and 850 Newton meters of torque also during overboost in normal driving both models make around 460 kW but what about acceleration the party piece of any EV the Taycan Turbo S rockets from 0 to 100 in as little as 2.6 seconds which isn't quite as quick as a Tesla Model S P100D with the lowly Taycan Turbo taking a rather less impressive 3.6 seconds to do the 0 to 100 sprint in terms of battery performance the Taycan features a 93.4 kWh battery pack with an all-new 800V fast charging capability, utilizing the CCS plug. Porsche claims the Taycan can be charged from 0 to 80% charge in just 22 minutes with a 270 kW DC fast charging system, as long as you utilise Porsche's new advanced battery preconditioning system. Failure to do this will result in a longer charge time of around 40 minutes. This is actually a massive step forward for future EVs as the Taycan is built on Volkswagen Audi's J1 platform which will also be used in the upcoming Audi e-tron GT which is basically a cheaper Audi version of the Taycan. We can also assume that smaller watered-down versions of the 800-volt charging system will eventually trickle down to the Volkswagen model lineup over time eventually ending up in future e-Golfs and the like further reducing charging times for more affordable cars. And on that note, no, all that stuff on the Taycan certainly isn't cheap. At this stage, New Zealand pricing hasn't been officially announced yet, but the US price of the Taycan Turbo S translates to just under 300,000 New Zealand dollars. Expect that figure to rise significantly when the actual New Zealand price is revealed. EV pundits and reviewers have noted in the press that despite costing far less than the Taycan, possibly over 100 grand less, the top-of-the-line Tesla Model S is not only faster to 100 kilometres per hour in acceleration, but also has a much higher range at nearly 500 km compared to Porsche's 200 to 300 kilometre range as tested on the WLTP test cycle. Porsche claims this is due to the performance-oriented nature of the motors and the fact that the Taycan rides on aggressive performance tyres rather than range-extending battery-friendly ones. The Taycan is also the world's first EV with a gearbox. Only fitted to the rear motor, the transmission is a Porsche developed two speed unit, utilising two multi-plate clutches and a planetary gear set, similar to an automatic transmission minus the torque converter. The car mostly uses the second speed in normal driving, with the first ratio, which is around half as short as the second, is used in Sport or Sport Plus mode for a much higher acceleration. So why is this such a big deal? Well at the moment, the motor in an EV is essentially stuck in one gear. This works fine as an electric motor can provide maximum torque instantly throughout its entire power band. It'll provide max torque at 0 or 10,000 RPM, it doesn't matter. However, for higher speed cruising, such as blasting down the German Autobahn at 250 hour, it makes sense to try and reduce the motor's speed to increase the battery life. Conversely, for super-fast launching off the line... It makes sense to have the motor geared down to increase RPM to extract all the available torque for a racing start. Now admittedly most of this is probably irrelevant for those of you who drive normally but it's a fantastic technological development. EV gearboxes have been around in very limited applications until now. Formula E cars use them and the Rimac electric supercar also had the ability to select multiple ratios from its electric drivetrain However, no mainstream EV has ever utilised a gearbox to increase performance or battery life. Enter ZF, the 104-year-old German transmission manufacturer, who manufactures some of the finest shifting, most reliable manual and automatic transmissions fitted to cars of all makes and models. In July this year, they announced their new two-speed electric transmission, a sort of all-in-one unit which contains an electric motor and two ratios for better range. ZF calls it a two-speed electric drive unit, and it allows manufacturers to enter the EV sphere much more easily, as they can now simply have ZF supply them with a unified power unit, rather than go all out and developing a powertrain of their own. This can, of course, reduce the costs required to develop new EVs, and bring battery range-saving technology to cheaper, more affordable EVs in the future. Also new in the world of EVs is the Honda E, This EV was also first seen as the Honda Urban EV prototype way back in 2017. When I first clapped eyes on it, I immediately wanted one. Rather than try and make their EV look overly styled and space age such as the Nissan Leaf, Honda stuck to a wonderfully classic, simple design, reminiscent of the original Honda Civic from the 70s, with a slightly boxy hatchback shape, horizontal front grille and circular headlights. Now, the final product which will go on sale is a little less nostalgic than the concept, but the design is still far more pleasing and more palatable to those coming from internal combustion cars, when compared to most EVs on sale today. There's nothing fussy or fancy about the front styling. In fact, it reminds me a lot of the E30 BMW 3 Series, a car which has now gone on to become a widely desirable 80s classic. Anyway, in terms of specs, it's very similar to a Nissan Leaf, with a 35kWh battery, around 110kW of power, and 210km of range. You get more torque though, with 310Nm on tap, but most importantly from a handling perspective, the Honda e has its motor in the rear, powering the rear wheels. Now, given my experience with rear-wheel drive BMWs, I can vouch for Honda's decision being the right one. Front-wheel drive cars simply don't have the planted, balanced cornering feel of a rear-drive car. Putting the power down is a lot easier as well given that during acceleration the weight transfer is towards the rear, pushing the back wheels into the road giving you better traction. Personally I think the Honda e will be a fantastic addition to New Zealand roads. Honda's ICE car sales have typically been very high here, and having an alternative to the Leaf will allow more people to enter the EV ownership realm. New Zealand pricing hasn't been released yet, however Honda seems to want to market it as a premium product which, given the UK and US pricing, will likely cost around sixty to eighty thousand New Zealand dollars. Is it just me, or can I hear the faint yelling and shouting of hundreds of hard working tradies and builders saying they'd love to get into the world of electric vehicles, but cannot see any options to replace their beloved hard working Ford Rangers and Hiluxes? Utes have dominated the top of New Zealand car sales for many years now, we're a country of small businesses and contractors, so this is to be expected. However, in recent years, families have increasingly traded their trusty station wagons and SUVs in for a ute, thanks to their incredible load carrying capacity and excellent towing ability. Frankly, it would be economic suicide for any car maker these days to not develop their own electrically powered pickup truck, given the size of the market and the electric motor's crazy ability to tow heavy loads. Tesla has mooted an electric ute rival to the Ford F-150, a pickup truck staple in the US of A. However, they've had their hands full with the Model 3 and Model Y. Come 2021, however, and you'll probably be able to get your hands on the Rivian R1T, the world's first electric ute. The design is classic American pickup truck, with a five-person crew cab and the usual flat deck and sides out the back. What's most impressive is the platform that the R1T utilises. Like the Porsche Taycan, Rivian spent most of their research and development on the drivetrain and platform, which can then be used in other models, such as their SUV, the R1S. Rivian also intends to licence the platform to other manufacturers, further providing more ute options for the EV market. But what about off-road capabilities? In that field, the Rivian definitely has you covered, with 35 centimeters of ground clearance, the ability to climb a 45% gradient, and wade through oneone meters of water. The all-wheel drive system is clever too. Gone are the days of having transfer cases, low-range gearboxes and half-shafts throughout the chassis. The Rivian features a powerful motor in each wheel, with power coming from a range of battery packs, including 105, 135 and 180kWh packs available to choose from, all utilising the CCS charging plug. The 135kWh model can sprint from 0 to 100 in just 3 seconds, with the 180 lagging behind slightly at 3.2 seconds. The model to get in terms of performance alone would seem to be the 135kWh model, which has the most power at 562kW and the fastest acceleration, with the 180kW more focused on battery range. And for those looking to tow their boats around, you'll be pleased to know that both 135 and 180 kWh models deliver an astonishing 1,120 Nm of torque and a 5 tonne towing capacity. In terms of range, this depends on the size of the battery you spec, but Rivian suggests 370, 480 and 643 km for each successive battery pack. So those are just a few of the key announcements in the world of EVs. Personally, I think they're all very important vehicles. Having Porsche construct a supercar-style EV with technology and engineering skills they've become known for from their petrol-powered sports cars over the last seventy years, it is an incredibly important step in the world of aspirational EVs. There will always be a need for a car that ten-year-old boys have a poster of on their bedroom wall, and one day it will most likely be electric. The Honda E is a fantastic alternative to the Nissan Leaf and given how many will be made and how reliable they'll be, it's likely a strong second-hand market will flourish in 5-10 to years' time, making them more accessible. The Rivian is important mainly for the drivetrain platform, and for daring to enter the world of the commercial vehicle, where the diesel engine was seen as the only way to go. But what about other vehicles? Surely if we're to reduce carbon emissions and our reliance on petroleum fuels for propulsion we need to have electric vehicles in more places than just on the Rhone. It wasn't exactly well publicised, but recently the Port of Auckland signed a contract with Dutch manufacturer Darman Shipyards to purchase the world's first battery electric tugboat to be operational by 2021. And this wasn't an off-the-shelf commission either. The Port of Auckland effectively tasked Darman with inventing an electric tugboat, something that the shipyards of the world were thoroughly unenthusiastic about. The electric RSDE2513 tug will have the same amount of power as the fossil fuel powered Hauraki, currently the port's most powerful diesel tug, at around 70 tonnes bollard pull. And if you thought the battery in the Porsche Taycan consumed a hefty chunk of power during a fast charge, wait until the Darman tug plugs in. The battery packs are expected to last around 3-4 to hours during heavy workloads, and require just 2 hours to recharge them from empty utilising a one and a half megawatt onshore charging system. In case of extremely heavy demands, a backup diesel generator on board the tug can fire up to recharge the batteries during use. However this is only ever used in emergencies and never as a typical hybrid system. Despite costing double what the diesel equivalent costs, the electric tug is more cost effective in the long run, with running costs projected to be a third of what they are for the diesel Hauraki. In terms of emissions, The CEO of Ports of Auckland Limited has pledged to become zero emission by 2040, and the addition of the Darman RSDE Commission is a bold step in the right direction to reducing maritime pollution which is seen as a big problem. Possibly one of the holy grails I guess of electric propulsion is the electric aircraft. Understandably this mode of transport faces some of the biggest challenges for any battery powered transportation. If you thought range anxiety was bad when going on a long trip in your Nissan LEAF sitting at 12% on a cold night, try running low on volts at 35,000 feet above open ocean. Fossil-fueled powered aircraft also burn their energy source as they travel, making them lighter and more efficient. Batteries do the opposite, and their power-to-weight ratio effectively gets worse as they lose charge, simply because a flat battery weighs the same as a full one. For this reason, there isn't a whole lot going on in the world of e-planes, despite the fact that the first flight by a battery-powered aircraft was made way back in 1973. A pair of very innovative Austrian gentlemen converted a petrol-powered motor glider into a nickel-cadmium battery-powered glider, which managed to stay airborne for a dizzying 14 minutes. No matter, the pair had become creators of the world's first electric aircraft. Fast forward to the 1980s and mid-2000s and we find NASA building a series of solar-powered unmanned aircraft and claiming numerous altitude and distance records in the process. Sadly, the Helios, an example of one of the craft in the program, encountered severe turbulence over the Pacific in 2003 and ended up disintegrating and falling into the sea. With a track record like that, there's probably some way to go before it would have been able to survive an approach into Wellington Airport on a mildly breezy day. However, fast forward to just two years ago when electronics company Siemens had great success modifying an extra 330LE acrobatic plane. These planes are light and agile, whilst also being immensely quick. Despite their purpose in life being to whiz past audiences at high speed and pull off dangerous stunts between closely spaced pylons and city harbors, they're actually perfect for electric propulsion. In 2017, Siemens converted one of these pocket rockets into the world's fastest E plane. At an airfield in Germany, the 330LE managed to reach 340 kilometers an hour over just 3 km and managed to tow a glider into the sky, all utilizing its 260 kW electric motor, which weighed in at just 50 kgs. Now, all this performance sadly doesn't last very long. The 580 volt motor certainly tears through the juice, with a flight time of just 20 minutes, which includes takeoff, landing, and 5 minutes of full throttle flight. It may not sound promising, but electric cars were once hopelessly slow and had next to no range, and now it feels like those days belong to an entirely different era. So don't rule out e-planes just yet. Obviously, the biggest issue with electric aircraft is the power-to-weight ratio being too low. A kerosene-powered modern high-bypass turbofan engine is an immensely powerful generator of thrust, utilising a very power-dense fuel. This marvel of engineering keeps the aircraft's weight down and the propulsion level high, enabling you to enjoy a rather rubbery airline meal and weak coffee whilst cruising at nearly the speed of sound on your way overseas. Battery technology simply hasn't advanced enough to come up with a low-weight, high-power output solution. Don't think for a minute, though, that electric aircraft have been deemed too difficult to implement. NASA's Glenn Research Facility is currently developing a number of hybrid technologies for aircraft, which will no doubt become fully electric solutions, just as battery EV cars replaced the first hybrid ones all those years ago. Most of NASA's offerings are conceptual for now, However, they are currently in the process of developing small electric jet engines designed to assist fossil fuel powered ones during an airliner's cruise phase. This of course reduces fuel consumption and emissions, whilst eliminating the need for heavy batteries designed to provide all the power needed for flight. There are also plans to develop an aircraft with tiny turbine generators placed in a conventional turbofan engine which would power small electric turbines, again, to improve efficiency whilst aiding the main kerosene-powered engines. Again, this is conceptual at this stage, so watch this space. I want to conclude this episode of Charge Up Dunedin with a few thoughts. I had always been interested in electric vehicles ever since I saw the groundbreaking film Who Killed the Electric Car many years ago. I had no idea that General Motors had managed to make such a successful electric vehicle years before anyone else, and I loved the controversy of how GM secretly crushed them all as big oil pushed down with its greasy finger. Okay, that part is somewhat conspiracy theorist, but most importantly, it got me thinking about EVs. Fast forward to 2013 when the Tesla Model S goes mainstream, and endless videos of people being pushed back into their seats as the car violently accelerates go viral. Here was an electric car that not only matched supercars in the 0-100 to sprint, but beat them as well. Now I was genuinely interested. But the price, astronomical, and the charging network, basically non-existent in New Zealand. Fast forward again to this year. Teslas are popping up on Kiwi roads everywhere, and it's hard to go a day without seeing a Nissan Leaf. Charging stations are somewhat commonplace, and EVs are now a viable way of getting around. And yet, despite this, I still see alarmist, inaccurate articles in prominent newspapers, usually devoid of any references, claiming that EVs will cause an environmental disaster with their toxic batteries leaching into landfills only after they've become useless at holding holding a charge after just five years. I still hear people going on about how expensive EVs are to buy, despite costing far, far less in the long run than any petrol-powered equivalent. So, therefore, I felt a need to create educational, accessible resources for people who want to know the truth about raw materials for EVs, the lifetime emissions, and how this technology will be used for other modes of transport in the future, using reliable peer-reviewed articles and studies. Despite only having three episodes, I feel that I have comprehensively covered these topics, and so far the feedback has been very positive. With that, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to the Dunedin EV Owners Group and the Otago Electric Vehicle Society in conjunction with Te Aoturoa for their support in making this podcast series possible. I'd also like to thank Pam McKinley, co-convener of the Dunedin EV Owners Group, for meeting with me every few weeks to chat about everything EV-related and for her guidance on the topics in these podcasts. And of course, a very warm thank you to you, the listeners, who take in all of this information. I hope that you've not only enjoyed my series of informational podcasts, but also learned something and addressed any misconceptions you might have about electric vehicles and their effects on the environment. Even though this is my last podcast for now, I certainly don't plan on going anywhere soon, and I hope to continue to create informational accessible EV content in the future, whether it be here on radio or on another platform. But for now, thank you very much for tuning in, and... Hopefully you'll hear from me sometime in the near future. Goodbye. Take RFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and live streaming of Primo local content. Download the Access Internet Radio app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on RFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.